0: Hello and welcome to another episode of the Rabona podcast. Once again, I'm Musa Kwonga, joined by Ryan Hun and Michael De Silva to discuss this week's action, but also the future of football, the good, the bad and the ugly. Michael, welcome back. Ryan, welcome back. Hey Musa, how you doing? Hello. Let's just get straight into it. This week's game, so much football. The yeah. Premier League last weekend, we saw
1: Wolves put in another really... Impressive performance great team, I think they at least deserve that draw Could have wouldn't have been completely unjust if they'd won it. um I really like the three they've got in attack. Mm. they're kind of like a uh they're like salah Firmino, mane light <laughs> <Ooh>. <laughs> um but a they drum, but they drum, operate in a similar way, you know. Um, And they caused defences, all kinds of problems. United couldn't really deal with them. Joao Moutinho at Wolves as well. What a fantastic signing midfield. Absolutely brilliant. Yeah. I mean, there's quite a few Wolves players in that team that weren't playing last season. And that's a bit harsh on those guys that did a good job of getting them up. Like, you know, even in goal, you know, John Ruddy um, had a great season, but I don't, I can't think, I think all of the changes are justified. Joao Moutinho is a a fantastic world-class addition. And I can't remember a, a Premier League, a newly promoted Premier League team, being as complete and as accomplished as them.
2: No, they look really good, really really good, and they could have, they could have nicked it at the end as well. There was a, that last three or four minutes, they 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 were away, a few times. Um, Triore
0: m- maybe could have had a bit better decision making. When Can you... I just say something as well about this discussion? What I love that we have discussed a game involving Manchester United. Not in the context of United's failures, but the context of the opposition's strengths. Because we always fall into that, tra- that trap, I think, when discussing yeah. so-called big teams against smaller ones where we talk about, oh my goodness, it's because United were terrible. Actually, United failed to impose match control. Absolutely. But I think Wolves were also superb in many ways.
2: Well, I think because it's no fluke either. You know, Wolves have gone to Old Trafford, got a point, got a point at home to Man City. The only points that Man City have dropped this season. And, you know, they just look the real deal they're by far the best team I can remember coming up from the championship so far in terms of how they look uh, especially in their first season in the Premier League and they just look very uh, accomplished throughout that starting 11 I mean I'm they're gonna hit a wall at some point I think it's just inevitable you you can see at the end of the game they looked pretty knackered Um, speaking
1: about United though Fred played well I think he's finally finding his feet in uh, for United. It was a really nicely taken goal. Great little pass from Pogba to um, create the chance, create the the space. And I'm excited to see what he can do for United this season. Um, Because as we discussed a few weeks ago, Mourinho sometimes has this way of suppressing talent, you know? Very Um, strange. But yeah, Fred looks promising,
0: I must say. I think him
2: and Pogba are going to going to click at some point, probably. Yeah. I think they look good.
0: Can I say, since we're talking about hitting walls, a team that hit a wall, a, a club in crisis, Chelsea. I <laughs> know <laughs> <laughs> that's not in crisis, but... <laughs> Nillador against West Ham, which is great credit to West Ham. We have to give them credit. Yeah. Also, perhaps a slight flaw or a chink in the Sarri armour, playing Kante in this slightly unusual advanced midfield role, which maybe doesn't take best advantage of his strengths, and Alvaro Morata really struggling up front.
2: Mm. I thought, well... I kind of made a bit of a joke on Twitter about that saying I really love Kante playing right wing when, uh, you know, Chelsea have the ball. But I didn't mean it literally. I forgot sometimes that football Twitter can be a bit serious.
0: <laughs> but I, I mean, visually,
2: that. it was just really fun seeing William come inside and then all of a sudden Kante's the widest, most forward kind of Chelsea player at some points in the first half. But actually, from a tactical point of view, I could kind of understand what Sari was trying to do, having him a little bit further forward getting Jorginho on the ball more. And as you saw it, he broke the Premier League passing record. He got 180 passes in a game. Jorginho? Yeah. It's the most passes a player has ever made in the Premier League game. So that's one every 30 wow. seconds.
1: Interesting And stat.
2: So that is a very key, you know, Sari trusts him, he knows him, and he wants to get him on the ball as much as possible. So if Kante's in that space you know, it can kind of detract attention away. What
0: Sarri is doing is Sarri is trying to have a very high press. As Piloqueta talked about this, he said, what's different with Conte? This is actually on the Football London website. Fantastic article. What um, Conte did was defend a certain way, but Sarri wants you to defend the pitch with a high line. And what Sarri probably is thinking is the higher up you press, the more chance you have to create discord chaos in the opposition in the final third. So, You push Kante 15, 20 yards further up the pitch, you lose defence midfield control to an extent, but you have this unbelievable intensity, this world-class intensity where the second ball falls to someone like Hazard or Murata, and it's dangerous. The thing I will say about this is the kind of trend I'm noticing, you know, Jorginho and Fernandinho at Man City, almost similar tactical approaches by Guardiola and Sarri, where you have these defence midfielders who actually aren't that good at defending, and if you press them, are in real trouble. If mm. you really press Jorginho, he's the kind of the weak spot. But the, the kind of the gamble that Sarri and Guardiola are making is that we're going to have so much of the ball and move it so quickly, you won't get a boot in on these players.
1: Yeah, there was a moment right at the end of that uh, game where Chelsea really needed Jorginho to um, deliver a, a, a good pass. I think it was to Willian. But they the West Ham pressured him really quickly. And then the ball went out of play and he just everyone kind of just, you know was deflated because that was
0: their last big chance so you can get at them can i say this as well one thing sorry ryan just before i jump it just before i forget this thread uh one thing that really strikes me about man city their one sort of point of weaknesses there's not an obvious replacement for fernandinho and they don't have to my mind a really terrific defensive midfielder that can come in and just see out games
2: well this is um something that i think is is a <sighs> It's a little bit of a myth, I think. I mean, you know, I'm an Arsenal fan and for years people have been telling me that all Arsenal need to do is replace Patrick Vieira. Whereas actually it was more Gilberto Silva as the player that you need to replace where there was a lot of talk when Arsenal, do you remember when Arsenal were in for Kadira before he went to Juve? And then a lot of people were saying, but he's not the defensive midfielder they need. And actually I kind of disagree with that because teams like Man City, Chelsea, um, Arsenal, even Tottenham to a, a certain extent, they're only going to need a player that defensive in that part of the pitch for maybe five, six games a season because they're going to dominate so many games. So what you need is someone who... like, for, I think Fernandinho is a perfect example of that, where he's not an out-and-out defensive midfielder and he might not be the best defensive midfielder, but in those games that you're actually going to... um. What's the word? Like submit control to the opposition. Mm. He can step in and play that role for twenty five minutes a game. Whereas there's no point in having the guy there for Man City for the rest of the season because they dominate so much of the ball. It's it's almost a waste of a player.
1: Yeah, good points. Um Thanks, <laughs> uh, <laughs> Thanks Dad. But I want to move it on because um, you know, you mentioned Arsenal and Tottenham there. Uh nice. two crucial wins really. I mean, start with Arsenal. I mean, they I think we're close now to seeing the strongest arsenal i think that starting 11 was more or less as strong as Ars- i mean torreira in midfield i think was is crucial i don't know i mean people are calling for Leno to come in um but check
2: played well uh, check i thought was arsenal's best player yesterday yeah. actually um i think the scoreline massively flat- flattered arsenal everton could have and should have been ahead at half time were very very dangerous the first half and check you know made a lot of crucial saves yesterday. So for all the flaws that he has in terms of this, you know, playing with the ball at his feet, he's, you know, still a very, very good goalkeeper. What
1: does that say about Arsenal's defence that they're able to um, leak so many uh, chances?
2: Well, the problem that I've seen so far, I just think that there hasn't really been a massive evidence, apart from the very first game of the season against Man City, there hasn't been any evidence of this supposed high press, Mm. high intensity pressing. It's not really been there yet. But also, I understand that things are going to take time after such a massive shift. I think that we Arsenal look shaky at the back. They lost Socrates yesterday, which the last few games he started to really look a little bit more comfortable. Mustafi is a major problem, I think, in that Arsenal defence. And I think it's when Koscielny's back fit, I think him and Socrates will be the main
1: two. Yeah, I mean, Mustafi just has no um,
2: composure. I would say well he likes to he's one of these players who likes to w- nip in and win the ball and come out from the back and kind of try and nip in front of a player or, and but he he may he goes to ground so easily mm. um and it it's very often uh it very often leads to us Ars- like exposing arsenal you know mm. um but yeah, I mean, I don't think it was Arsenal's best game of the season by any means. I think it was their first clean sheet of the season under Emery. Mm. Um, and a
1: fantastic goal by Lacazette. Yep,
2: yeah, very good goal. The second one was offside. Aubameyang was miles offside. I don't know how it, w- it wasn't given. Yeah. Um, but yeah, in the first half, Everton... Ar- Arsenal were much better in the second half, but in the first half, Ever- Everton were really, really good and deserved a
0: lot more of the game. Yeah, things are starting to click under Emery, I think. But isn't that great then? Because you've won a game where you were subpar, with two goals from at least one forward has been maligned. Lacazette has had a tough time. Erzl's role out on the flank seems to be suiting him a bit better. Torreira is really great because he will add the intensity. He will give, he will lead the press, I think. I was impressed by fans. So that's by him, also, you know, yeah. Cazola, Santi cazola gave out the great interview and he wasn't being critical of Wenger. He was just saying there were just certain things that needed to change. And we needed to change our mentality to being a team that could challenge for the title as opposed to settle for third or fourth. So he wasn't, you know, cause all the with the greatest respect to Wenger was just saying, give Emery time. And I think what's exciting about Arsenal right now is they are sort of positioning themselves as you've got Liverpool and City out by themselves, let's not kill ourselves. But they're kind of the next in line at this point. Yeah, I mean the
2: key thing is is that whilst this transition is going on, just to pick up points, they're, they're, they're miles away from being where they're going to be under Emery. I think they they still look very very shaky. They don't. I don't think he knows his best eleven yet. I don't think actually the system worked so well yesterday with Earlsal out wide and Ramsey higher. I think eventually I've. Just got a gut feeling that you'll see Ramsey drop in a bit deeper next to Terreira and maybe Xhaka might be the one who loses out in order to for it just to feel a little bit more balanced. It wasn't very balanced yesterday. Yeah, but I um, think there needs to be quite a lot of surgery on that Arsenal team. Yeah they, need that. yeah, they need a few transfer. Yeah, they need a few transfer windows for sure. Yeah. What about Spurs? Back 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 to winning <laughs> yeah, ways. Yeah,
1: three games without a win. They really needed it. Brighton's not an easy place to go, especially um, you know had difficult conditions as well, and they Spurs just ground it out. You know. um, Pochettino's starting to look a bit kind of uh, affected by the pressure. You know, after the inter, the inter game, he lashed out of the press, which is just kind of bizarre. I mean, he just doesn't usually do that. He keeps his cool both in victory and defeat. Um, but yeah, I think the manner of that inter loss was really quite damaging to the the psyche. So it's good to see Spurs come back so strongly. And I thought Lucas Mora was excellent again, has been Tottenham's best player in most of the games we've played this season. Um, Harry Kane scored again and Lamella, you know, to come on as a sub in the last two games and scored in the last two games. So, yeah, it was just one of those kind of classic stop the rot victories. Um,
0: Can I be a a bit contrarian? Feels like just a bit flat with Spurs. Yeah, it just feels like they don't have... I look at them now and I'm like they've raised expectations so much because they are you know terrific the last few years they've been mm. in terms of their improvement and they're now a team that you solidly expect to be they're just the top four team like for me
1: I think it's just a bit of a a reality check of where they are at the moment or right. where they you know they've they've over um performed for three or four years now and it's just like okay this is actually how good you are I <laughs> I mean I don't think there's any shame in that and losing three in a row well you know, every team goes through a bad
2: patch. I think, you know, the good thing about Lucas Moura is that it's shown actually what having having a player of that quality to bring in can actually do for Spurs. I think if they had had a striker, I mean, ha- finding a striker anywhere near Harry Kane's quality is very, mm. very difficult for a price that Spurs would pay. Yeah, But I think he's looked so tired recently that just being able to take him off in a game with 20 minutes to go or something Mm. when they're 2-0 up or something I think just
1: well you know I was thinking the other day that Spurs should go in next summer for Jamie Vardy Um, he's getting older um, and 20-30 minutes off the bench each week is probably how
0: you know what he'd like from his career, and he's know? still so fast. Yeah. yeah, Vardy is. It's. I was watching at Leicester Huddersfield. Yeah, and he's astonishing. Yeah. Like his yeah. acceleration.
2: I actually think he'd be a perfect signing for Spurs. I actually do really. too. Really, I really think, perfect um, signing. Whether Vardy
1: agrees. And whether he wants to be Kane's understudy, having been his understudy for England, um, would be a different question. But, you know, Hyung Son can play that role and he's done it well. Um, but, yeah, Spurs need reinforcements there. But as I've said on this podcast many times before, they need a dominating central midfielder. Um, They've got Wanyama coming back soon though, right? Yeah, he's not the guy though. I mean, he's a good player, but he's not the guy. Dembele is good. He's getting older. Harry Winks isn't old enough. Um, And they just need that experience. But, um, you know, Kovacic just wish we'd signed in.
0: What's going on at Bournemouth? Because they have this, you know, they they eviscerate a team last week, should have won 4-0, and then this week get absolutely taken to the cleaners by Burnley. Thank you, Burnley. Can I say respect to Burnley? Because it's nice to see Burnley playing more expansive football, which they've been trying to do, I think, all season, and actually reaping the benefits. Um, So I'm really happy that they've kind of been rewarded. And can I say as well, Aaron Lennon was peak Aaron Lennon mm-hmm. he was, was so good with a goal and two assists yeah mm-hmm.
2: I actually had on my list of things to talk about on the podcast was to some praise for Eddie Howe last week and he obviously ruined that day they got a
0: taste their own medicine though yeah. because the pre—the week before they've been absolutely brutal on the break yeah brutal and then Bernie just went to warp speed I mean you've got Aaron Lennon running at you with that intensity and the thing is <sighs> The, the one thing that Bournemouth shouldn't do is learn the wrong lessons from that defeat. Mm. It'll be very easy to go, okay, we lost 4-0. But I think you've got to just say, look, if you encounter Aaron Lennon in that kind of mood, cutting at you. I mean, I think he he was he cut off both flanks mm. to create goals and score. It's just unfortunately one of those days.
1: Aaron Lennon can be just as effective on the left as on the right. Mm. He really can. He's an uh, underrated player even in the...
0: Uh autumn of his career <laughs> well because he can beat your father f- no he can beat you with a, his balance is so good he can beat you in either direction mm. equally well and that's yeah sure.
2: right. yeah um quick shout for john McGinn's wonder goal for villa oh my word which insane oh. goal is uh very fun to watch with the partridge commentary over the top from the day-to-day <laughs> um against sheffield wednesday right yeah, lost, I think. yeah. it was the perfect volley, volley. volley. That, that angle from behind him as well yeah that's yeah. good and um do you want to do a quick Scottish Premiership mention? For because sure. Because was it Premiership or is it Premier League? I think it's Premiership still. Scott it is the premiership. Hearts yeah. are top. Unbeaten. Celtic are sixth. Six points behind Hearts. Rangers second. Hibs third. Livingston fourth. Kilmarnock fifth. Who Scot- beat the Celtic. Scottish the
0: football. Good again. It's fun again.
2: Okay. There you
0: go. Gerard's doing a really quite good job. He got a draw um, against Villarreal, didn't he? Yeah, that was
2: a really fun game, actually. That was probably the best from a few of the games I watched in the Europa League. That was probably the best game I watched. And um, yeah, I mean, slowly but surely. Again, very early days. But, you know, a lot of people were quite critical of him taking that job, actually, as his first job. Quite a lot of people being quite dismissive about it. And actually, I think he's... You know, showing it to be a pretty smart move.
1: I think it was a smart move because I did actually. I,
2: even at the time, I thought
1: because Rangers are a club that are have come back from you know years of turmoil, um but they're they're on the upwards, yeah, definitely. And there's no, it's it's not like a you can't lose kind of scenario. But there's a lot more pressure if you're Brendan Rodgers in charge of Celtic. Mm-hmm. You're expected to win. Rangers are just expected to challenge again and. You know, when you're starting out as a coach, you want you want to be winning. You want to have experience winning, and you just want a role where the pressure is not so on you. Where you look at Lampard and Gerald and Lampard can't seem to be mentioned <laughs> one without the other. But you know, Lampard taking the Derby job was, I think, a a really really brave move for a first job in the Championship is tough enough, but Derby they're expected to at least be in
0: the playoffs each year. So. Can I say one thing I love about Steven Gerrard and Frank Lampard is their yeah, their bravery and their honesty about where things didn't work out. So there's great interviews you saw, Gerard reflecting on his career, things that didn't go quite so well. And the honesty and Frank Lampard talking about this golden generation, why it didn't work out and maybe we weren't we were a bit selfish. And I think that kind of self reflection, that kind of honesty is what actually we should have been thinking. Yeah, these guys will make good managers mm. because they have the ability to reflect honestly on their own position, their place within a structure. And, you know, without naming certain names as pundits, like there are other pundits who don't do that so well. And that's why I think they're sitting in the kind of pundits chair and not in the dugout because... N- name them. No, no, we're, we're, not, that, we're, not, we're not that kind of podcast. That, that's, that's my Twitter. I've got, I've got a different brand on Twitter. Anyway, enough for me. Listen, <laughs> I don't know the tone. Let's take a quick break and then come back and discuss some European football, a bit of roundup there, and then the future of football. Back from the break with a quick roundup of the European action, domestic leagues. Michael, what was happening the weekend?
1: Uh, well, I had my eye on the Bundesliga, as I often do. Um, Bayern beat Schalke, last, two, last season's top two teams um but what a difference a few months make Bayern is uh top of the league as you might expect they've won all their games Schalke can't even get a point there uh they lost two nil in that game but this played for lost four for them so um yeah quite a strange season the only game they've played where they haven't lost is Champions League last week against Porto um but Hertha Berlin are one of the most interesting stories. They um their second they've they've won three of their games and drawn one they demolished um uh, Borussia munchen gladbach at the weekend who are you know also having a good season 4-2 so um and Hertha host bayern this friday night nice so uh so yeah that's that's quite interesting um leverkusen got their first win of the season as well so they're up and running um that kai that, that man Kai. Yeah, he's, you know, he's, he's the future of German football. He's 19 and, you know, he scores crucial goals. He's a very effective striker and, you know, he's kind of tall and a bit gangly. Um, but he's got a real smart um, football brain. He reads the, the game really well. Without him
2: and Brandt, they'd be in... Big trouble this season, I think. I mean, they are in quite a big trouble, but they they seem to be the two things that really look like. I
1: expected Leverkusen to do really well this year. Yeah. I thought they would be the ones, possibly Bayern's closest challengers, um, but
0: it hasn't just hasn't worked for them so far. But you know, it could just be a slow start. This is slightly off the beaten track in German football as well. But Hamburg went down for the first time, I think, in their recent history. In, think, in their history, in their history, yeah. they went down last season. And they lost 5-0 at home to Regensburg. And it's fascinating, isn't it? When a team has been up for so long and goes down to the division below, there's either the bounce-back effect or there's the kind of gut punch. And Hamburg right now are having a bit of a gut punch. Yeah, I still think Hamburg would be okay. But, yeah, it's that kind of
1: shock, I think, of just being down there.
0: St. Pauli next for them, right? Hamburg Mm. derby. Ooh, should get over there for that. Three hours on the bus, not far. (laughs) Two on the train. Ten euros. Ten (laughs) euros if you book early. So there you go. (laughs) Ryan, you've been looking at the Spanish league.
2: Uh, Yeah, Barca dropped points the first time this season due to your home to Girona. They were down to 10 men, weird VAR, elbow thing. Um, So they're level on points with Real now, who beat Espanyol 1-0 at home. Um, Best game of the weekend for me was probably Betis-Athletic-Bilbao. Really fun game. Two-all draw. Nyaki Williams got the first. Raul Garcia got the second. And Mark Bartra scored an absolute wonder wonder goal. It was a great goal from like 30 yards out. I saw that. That was amazing. Um, And then Sergio Canales got the equaliser set up by Christian Teo, which... Just sounds nice betis
0: <laughs> not nice. two really interesting teams.
2: Yeah, Betis, are, like, they're not scoring goals. That was their f- their first two goals since Joaquin's goal in the Seville Derby. That was the only goal they'd scored in That was a couple of weeks ago, right? A while back, three, of,
0: yeah, three weeks ago, I think. Yeah. So they're not
2: scoring goals. They need to score more goals. Um, it's a
0: bit random, but when Bill Bauer involved, it's like everything just goes up a notch. You know, the hmm. intense, it's like, you know, like, Sounds a bit silly, but you know the late 90s, like early two thousand, Buster Rhymes came on a track and it just raised the whole tempo of <laughs> oh, everything. Yeah. Like Bilbao, like they're kind of, they just add. I mean, the game against Real last week, I think it was a couple of weeks ago, and they just raised the level of everyone else's performance because that intensity they bring. Yeah,
2: that was know. like the game of the weekend that weekend as well. Um, I think Atletico won, finally.
0: Yeah, Lamar got a couple, well, well one finally, or two. But... Own goal and a goal. Lamar yeah, his,
2: his first goal was... Not really his goal. It was like a 30-yard shot off the bar, hit the keeper, went in. Great drive. St- though. Great second strike. one was good. Yeah. Lovely pass from um, uh, from Koke. Um, and yeah, in that game, Ivan Alejo got sent off four minutes after coming on as a substitute, which uh, was quite funny. <laughs> quite nice uh, it was work. a bit of a nasty one. He went over uh, studs down on Saul's calf. It was pretty grim. Mm. Um, Sevilla beat Levante 6-2. First time they've scored six goals in La Liga. Wow. Ben Yedder got a hat-trick wesker lost again wow. so that's over but yeah um what else happened in europe syria ronaldo scored again
0: mm. yes late strike he scored 10 minutes in the end i think yeah and this is the funny thing i shouldn't be so surprised because ronaldo is physically in great condition but the second goal they scored against Frosinone, and ronaldo leading the break he actually played a bad pass um on the break but the speed that he led the counter-attack this is a 33 year old man who's outpacing 95% (laughs) of players (laughs) half his age. It's
2: unbelievable. I'm going to let people behind the curtain a little bit here. On my notes for the show, under Serie A, it just says in bold capitals, Jovino with about 15 O's on the end.
0: Jovino's goal. Absolutely beautiful. And a great goal and a vindication of Arsene Wenger picking him out of a crowd because you look at Jovino and you think this is a guy that's a terrific footballer, but it wasn't for lack of talent that he didn't Mm. make it. Maybe timing, Maybe a bit of decision making, but all the talent is still there. So I'm glad to see him doing well at Parma.
2: Um, Sassuolo won. They're doing really well this season. And also a
1: brief mention f- uh, for the Dutch league, brief and rare mention, but the top two teams played. Um, PSV beat Ajax 3 0. Um, yeah, like a, a really huge victory for them. And they, PSV have won six out of six this season. They're flying. Um, I mean, it's always between those two and final, but, um, yeah, Ajax quite not the, not quite, sorry, the dominant, um, dominant force they've always been.
0: So with a team Ajax that looks at the future so often, let's get to the next part of the podcast as a segue, the future of football. So many big changes happening in the game, some good, some bad, some very ugly. And Ryan, I know you in particular have thought about this theme a great deal. What concerns you about the future of football that is a huge question, <laughs> to be honest. Many, many,
2: many things. I mean, maybe we can start with just the, the escalating transfer
0: fees. Well, it all started with Neymar, didn't it? Can yeah. I be a bit more controversial and say, actually, I think it started with that time that Juventus brought in Buffon for like 30 odd million oh. and Turan for about 30? Because what you saw then was, until then, it was only really attackers that went for those huge sums. Mm. And what happened with, you know, with football being this game, which is now about space and pressing, and it it, it puts more premium on other players in well, all the, positions. So Van Dijk, for example, you could say that Van Dijk going for seventy eight million or whatever it was, was the logical endpoint of this, where actually a player's crucial nature isn't just because they're at front, it's at the back or wherever. Yeah. But there is no end point, is there? It's a, it's a constant
1: evolution. And, you know, how long is it going to be before the first... £100 million defender, £150 million defender. I mean, where does it end? Um, You know, I think it's interesting that you bring up Buffon and Turan because they were, I mean, Buffon especially, I mean, that was, that record, transfer record for a keeper stood until this summer, 17 years. Um, And I think we've been, yeah, we've been approaching this point for a while, but something just tells me that Neymar kind of tipped it.
2: It's worth kind of remembering, though, as well that Mendieta went to Lazio for forty-three million pounds in two thousand and one.
0: The scary thing with Mendieta was he went to Lazio and barely played, or at least didn't play to his level. Mm. And you look at Barcelona in recent games; they fielded Coutinho and Dembele. These are players with the combined transfer value of, and this is the Neymar money, you know, to an extent, but mm. a combined transfer value of three hundred million euros, mm. and they haven't really won anything. You know, they haven't really. And this these is days,
1: you know, elite clubs have to play, have to pay. That kind of money for for prospects rather than finished articles it's absolutely insane I mean Dembele is a is a really fantastic player but and he scored a great goal um last week by the way but really like he's 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 still very much a work in progress and maybe five years still away from the player he he will be
2: eventually do you think that they would have paid that fee though had they not got the money for Neymar? in in standalone they would i don't think no, no i don't I think, think so. barcelona pay that fee without um the neymar so and i think you look at liverpool for example as well the reason that they i think we said this on the podcast they kind of earned the right to go and spend that money on um, allison and on um, van dyke and um fabino really um because of the how well they've sold in the last four or five years
1: and this is the point every so often every few years you get this big superstar neymar Mbappe, you know, if he goes to Real Madrid, say he'll be the next. Where they're they're hyped to such a level, and often for sometimes for good reason, it's, you know, Mbappe's a an absolutely a class act. But when that move happens, Mbappe to Real Madrid for three hundred million, for example, it hikes the entire market. And there is the knock on effect is the players you just mentioned, Musa coutinho right. dembele um going for fees that are are
0: just crazy and you have to wonder where it all where it where it's heading well actually arsene wenger the great visionary himself talked about I think, the abolition of transfer fees at some point and wenger is someone who's you know the kind of the nostradamus of <laughs> world football so he talked about the european super league yeah. a long time before it manifested and i think actually there'll be a point where transfer fees become a thing of the past and it becomes almost a bit more like football uh, sorry a bit more like a uh, the NBA mm. where you've got people it's a free agency and so on and money being generated through other means because the transfer fee system
2: I mean clubs still spend the same money though really or they spend a little bit less money but it just means the players earn more money so if 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 players see out their contracts which is what I think Wenger said players are seeing out their contracts more and moving for free they their wages go up they receive a higher signing on fee so the money still flows but it's just in a different way it just means more of it goes directly to the players than to the ind- to the clubs you know
0: and actually and to your point that's an excellent point you make and let me contradict myself almost immediately there was a great piece of research i don't remember who by now but it was talking about the transfer value and the cost of these players and saying actually as a percentage of turnover as a percentage of turnover these are the kinds of fees you'd expect to see clubs spending because mm. And this is to the point we'll come to later about the way the game being globalised and grown so much. If you bring in that amount of revenue, if you grow, you know, football exponentially, you can pay 50 million for a fullback. You can pay 70 million for a squad player because the pie is five times what it was X years ago. Was this
2: the thing that said that,
0: um, so basically
2: what Van Dijk cost Liverpool in terms of percentage was pretty much the same as what
0: Ferdinand cost Man United. It might've been, I actually think it might've been earlier. I was having a conversation with um, the team at Sky Sports. I was going to do some, uh, some work for them. And we had a chat about turnover and it came up in relation to the Carl Walker fee actually, mm-hmm. because I was saying, you know, that's a good fee relative to what he gives city. Like it, with what Carl Walker gives Man City, it's basically equivalent of a kind of hybrid forward fullback. And the point the journalist made is that actually it's even more simple than that. It's not just the value of the team. It's, The financial value is in line with what you expect in relation to turnover.
2: Yeah, well, on that Amazon documentary, after the first couple of episodes, it gets quite interesting. And there's one bit where the, um, I forget the the CEO of Man City, but when he's he's saying, he's talking about their transfer policy, and a lot of it is around the Sanchez stuff. And he's very much like, this doesn't make sense for us, we walk away. You know, so they still have this really, they seem to be really on it in terms of like, they value players at a certain level. And I mean, probably every club does this. You just don't get that kind of access. But I found that kind of interesting that even a club of Man City's power is like, it's just not worth it. We can, we can go.
0: Well, I think the beauty of being at Manchester City is that you've got Guardiola there. So if you've got a player who is on your radar, who you really want, but someone who's a little bit cheaper, Guardiola's ability can bring him up with the quality of training, Mm. you know, let's walk away from this deal because we'll just, we'll just improve Sané. And I want to talk about City because I think there's a bit of a segue to the next point about the future of football, the depth of squad at Manchester City. Mm. This is something that we saw at AC Milan in the wonder years where they could basically have two 11s of fairly similar quality. Mm. Um, You know, really this is a squad game. Bernardo Silva has come in for David Silva. De Bruyne has been replaced by Gundogan and he looked at them to blue Cardiff away. Yeah. The Without. ease with which City have replaced De Bruyne That's frightening. <laughs> it's <is> frightening. It's <laughs> absolutely frightening. Yes, yeah, but also it. Liverpool bringing Sturridge off the bench. You know, you've got the, the modern manager being able to keep large numbers of of players happy. And what I loved, Guardiola made a statement. He said, "Look, Moraes is fantastic." <laughs> Quite funny, described him as if Moraes hadn't won anything. Incredibly talented player. He's won the <laughs> Premier League, you know, yeah. African player. League. But he, he, he said. Foden, I love watching Foden play. I love watching Mahrez play. They're going to play a lot of minutes this season. And I thought it was really nice that Guardiola took that opportunity to say, this is a squad game. You're going to play a lot of football. We're competing on all fronts this year, which they will be. But
1: we talk about the, the future of football. Why is it that... Guardiola is is such a successful coach is it his I mean obviously tactical level etc but how he interacts with his players I think there's a similarity there with with Jürgen Klopp as well um that they that it's almost like the manager is an extension of the squad um as opposed to you know me
0: and them I don't know there's a trust I think you know they always talk about the group when you build um a great dressing a great team you can say it with Deschamps to an extent, somebody who, um, it's not about having had to be a player. It's about making very clear what the role is. If you look at like mm-hmm. Liverpool, for example, even players who've got multiple roles in team like James Milner or, or Adam Lallana is a great example. Somebody who, when Klopp comes in, it's like, this is absolutely your place in the squad. You mm-hmm. look at United, for example, who are struggling. And if you ask any one of those players, what their specific role is, with the exception of maybe three or four of them who've got specialist positions like Luke Shaw, a lot of them can tell you mm. and that I think is the key difference. Someone like Fabian Delph, Guardiola came in and a lot of people would expect him to sort of get rid of someone like Delph. Mm. But he said, actually, I want you as a fullback on this day. I want you here on this day. And that's the genius of the modern manager, the ability to assemble disparate parts into evolving, evolving squads. Yeah. And a lot of um, the
1: coaches you just mentioned operate within the director of football model as well. Um, where, you know, I noticed this at Spurs with Pochettino, who's brought in his director of football from Southampton, and they almost work as a as a unit and throughout their their, their entire coaching career. Um, and that's a real shift from what we saw even even ten fifteen years ago.
2: Yeah, I think it's you've seen that with the maybe the level that coaches go to now, or or managers or coaches, however you want to call them, as they have had to manage fewer facets from the club as a whole. In in the UK, because I think this model has been a lot longer has existed has existed a lot longer in Europe, um, and it was a very you know people used to refer to it as a continental model. Yeah, and know. it allows the the coach to to focus on coaching. Yeah, exactly, and yeah. that strengthens the relationship with the player, where it's like you know you use Guardiola and Delph as a really good example. Someone like Guardiola comes to Man City. Fabian Delph's probably thinking I'm gone. And then Guardiola comes in and goes, right, I need you at left back. And this is why I need you at left back because you are so good at X, Y, and Z. And actually Fabian Delph is like, wow, this guy has thought about my game more than I have, you know, and sees me in a different position. And that can be hugely
0: motivating. It's funny because what quite often, you know, I laugh and I'm involved in this as well. I often laugh. People say project, (laughs) you know, the, the football club has a project, but what they actually mean, I think is there is a vision. Like, we talk about footballers as just being motivated by money, but if they just wanted money, they'd go off to Qatar at the age of 22 or China. But And there's nothing wrong with doing that. I'm just saying there's a wider aspect to what footballers are trying to achieve. There is a sense of the football I want to play. I've got a career for 10, 15 years and I want to enjoy it as much as possible. Mm. And if you go to you know certain clubs, if you're playing someone like Nag- Nagelsmann in, in Germany, who's like a 31-year-old coach who was brilliant with Hoffenheim the year before, you're looking at someone who is playing thrilling football and it, it's not just great money but it's it's great ideas and it's it's a re- I suppose it's like working for an exciting company.
2: Yeah, I think teams like Hoffenheim, maybe RB Leipzig as well, with those kind of coaches that they have are really important now. A lot more important than I think not them specifically as clubs, but those type of clubs and teams are really really important. I'd include someone like Eddie Howe at Bournemouth even as well in that in in the Premier League or um Wolves and even Watford is that the, the amount of clubs that you can realistically win stuff with at the moment is reducing so rapidly that actually having that second layer of clubs that offers something different and then as a stepping a stepping stone to get into those kind of teams but you are already being drilled in a very similar way that you would be doing if you were playing under Pepper man city but that smaller pool of clubs that can win things realistically
1: is for me the biggest threat to football as a whole yeah and you look too. at the the leagues throughout europe and there's only one or two teams in each of those leagues that are going to win something and that's 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 deeply deeply concerning um and the premier league is not as affected but slowly getting that way well this um, is
2: kind of maybe apps that we're talking about this because of uefa's announcement about the third, com- third European competition. It got me kind of thinking a lot about my uh, Cup Winners' Cup conspiracy theory kind of thing that actually I think a lot of what is going on now can stem back to the removal of the Cup Winners' Cup. It didn't happen instantly, but what? By beefing up the Champions League, you created a number of teams that Arsenal, a prime example regular Champions League qualification, We're never going to really win the league and they were never going to win the Champions League. So it, it creates this kind of cycle. And then with the, with the massive increase in teams in the Europa League... Well, the Europa League is being reduced in size, um, I think from 2021
1: to 32 teams when this new competition comes in. But some teams get caught in that cycle that you're just mentioning. Arsenal mm. were caught in it for many, many years under Wenger, where they weren't good enough to win the league, but they weren't bad enough to finish fifth. Spurs are now caught in that now. Um, and Manchester United, if they're not careful, are going to get caught on that with the rise of Liverpool and, and City. Mm. Um, and this is, you know, this kind of rewarding, um,
0: not mediocrity, but just not quite. It devalues the quality of the, the annoying thing about the Europa League for me is it devalues the quality of the UEFA Cup. The UEFA Cup was a standalone, yeah. you know, in Parma beat Marseille in that incredible final, I think yeah. of the late nineties with that astonishing team. Both teams are good enough to have reached the quarters of the Champions League, potentially. Mm. I and mean, would certainly Palmer are good enough to be have... the And but because it was a standalone competition, you didn't feel like it was devalued. Now, because you can drop out of the Champions League into the Europa League, mm. it's almost like a plate competition. Well, the, the thing is, people want to watch quality.
1: I've heard Arsene Wenger say this before. They wanna, they, 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 you're just always yearning for that higher, higher level of quality. That's why we all watched PSG versus Liverpool last week, because it's just two elite teams going at it. And the only way you're going to maintain that is by reducing the size of the competition and not always chasing the dollar. And you know, with um, with the, I think they the UEFA have seen with the Europa League that it's just too big, and it's not really until you get into the semi-finals that you have games worth watching.
0: To be honest, and think- it reminds me of so what this reminds me of is when you know that the heyday of the music industry when they were charged like 17 quid for a CD that had two good songs on it (laughs) and people just got fed up. And I think a lot of the kind of illegal downloading file sharing was going to happen anyway, but the vigor of the file sharing was a kind of backlash against you've been ripping us off for years. And I think if people had been a lot more generous with product, if people had actually charged five quid for a CD, they'd have much more brand loyalty when file sharing happened. I think they're having football with streaming, people are now just streaming or tuning out because they're like, I'm not going to pay for this product. Yeah. There's too much of it. Absolutely. It's,
1: it's, a, it's a great comparison. And I think reducing the size of the, the the Europa League and to be honest, I think the Champions League as well. I mean, th- th- I would love to see the Europa League, um, to be honest, as a straight knockout from
2: round one. The last few days I've been writing a piece about this and it went through and looked at some numbers. So this season, for example, you got 79 teams are going to be in the Champions League at some point from qualification. Right. So you're talking about pre-qualification from July or No, in in total this season 79 teams would have played a match in the Champions League. Yeah. 213 teams would have played in the Europa League by the final. Yeah, in that's total. that's absolute insanity. And but the Cup Winners' Cup had 32 teams every year. It was the Cup winners every year and if, yeah. if the Cup winner also won the league then it was the finalist, the beaten finalist who won it. So the thing is it creates this I don't want to kind of like sound like, you know, it was bareback in my day, but it created this turnover of teams throughout those three competitions, which kept them genuinely exciting. And if you missed out on Champions League qualification Mm. and went into the Cup Winners' Cup or the UEFA Cup, the fallout wasn't as um, monumental as it now is Mm. if a team has 10 years in the Champions League, doesn't ever win it, doesn't win the league, and then goes in the Europa League.
1: And I think the appeal of the Cup Winners' Cup and hopefully the tournament that they're bringing in um the third tournament they're, they're planning to bring in will bring back that element of unpredictability mm. because teams that win the cup you know you know we've had crystal palace in a fa cup final in recent times um portsmouth you know seeing those teams go at it just makes it fresh and exciting and maybe it doesn't have that 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 quality that i was mentioning earlier but it makes it a more interesting competition and i think um, reducing the size of the Europa League, um, possibly the Champions League. It's it's trying to concentrate the quality. But ultimately, I don't think it's going to be enough to, um, to ward off a European Super League.
2: Yeah, maybe. But I think that's because you've got a number of teams who are consistently in the Champions League who are looking for that next thing. It's not enough anymore because yeah. they're so used to it. Mm-hmm. Whereas like two teams who won the Champions League in the last five years, I think it's something like, six teams have won the Europa League in the last 10 years and only one of those finals hasn't featured a team that dropped into it from the Champions League whereas in the last 10 years of the Cup Winners Cup there were 10 different winners yeah exactly that innovation hasn't hasn't really worked it's not worked at all and it's extended into in my opinion it was the catalyst you didn't see it straight away but now I think if you really went in and got into the numbers and drew the line back get getting rid of the Cup Winners Cup was the starting point or one of the key pieces that you see in terms of how a lot of European leagues are dominated by one or two clubs now and how far they are away from the rest of it and I really really hope that UEFA do something sensible for a change with this competition and ignore what a lot of the big clubs who you know, are comfortably in the Champions League want and actually do something like making it all smaller and hopefully making it a lot more interesting. We're all football romantics here and we'd love to see
1: that. Um, I just think ultimately the chasing
0: the money is going to win. All about the Euros. Actually uh, a quick segue there. Um, We're looking at ways the game has changed and the concentration of power in certain hands. Now that's happened for clubs. It's also happened for agents. Yeah. And there was one point when, a lot of the Mino Raiola players went to Old Trafford and Mendes went with Mourinho. There was a kind of a thought that actually the <laughs> the football agent almost became a sort of a sporting director to an extent, a de facto mm. sporting director at certain clubs. And uh, how do you feel the rise of agents has affected the game? I think it's hugely damaging.
1: Um, I mean, you've got you've got agents identifying clubs that are desperate, maybe stupid enough to pay their exorbitant fees. And Manchester United, no disrespect, me, sir, were coming off the back of that Ferguson era and were absolutely desperate to make sure they stayed there, stayed at the top, and they were prepared to pay whoever the, um, they needed to, to get the players they wanted. And I think agents are a cancer of the game.
0: I mean, I have a slightly different view only because... I, you know, we, we were discussing this. I think a bit earlier about um, you know before before the podcast, we were discussing a player like Casemiro playing at Real Madrid with a with a bad agent could be for could play for anyone of fifty fifty teams and wouldn't get his big break, and the right agent can really position you in a really you know really exciting way that can change your life. So the flip side for me is almost they have a really great value in putting players placing them in the right way. But I think what you're saying is something different. It's more a sense of abuse of a dominant position. Yeah, I mean, yeah.
1: Like not every agent behaves in that way, but I think the position can be abused. Mauricio Pochettino doesn't have an agent. He negotiates all of his own contracts and he's doing all right.
2: I kind of, I'm not, I'm not entirely sure if the agents are actually to blame in this situation because at the end of the day, the clubs, if the clubs didn't pay the money, then they wouldn't be able to a earn as much and b be as dominant in the kind of industry in terms of moving clubs around uh, moving players around i think it's it's a tough one for me to kind of say which way that yeah. kind of It would be great, to, great to see
1: a, a players union or something emerge but i think that's perhaps far too a socialist idea
2: well this is something <laughs> that like we ref like reference the nba a fair bit the difference between the nba is that it's one league i mean it's basketball but the nba is a very specific model and they have this thing where they have, you know, Chris Paul is like the, the main rep of the players, like union, if you like. And he negotiates the stuff with the league and, you know, the collective I love bar- bargaining agreement and stuff like that. And, it's, that. and they all really look out for each other and they all seem to be very keen on making decisions that benefit the league, that benefit the players and that benefit the franchises and the fans. There's a really, really big fan element in there. Mm. And you see it, maybe this is kind of a point we're going to move on to. So maybe it's my turn for a segue. So, <laughs> but, you know, the the accessibility to to stream and view the NBA, they're very keen for people to share stuff online about mm. highlights that happened or, you know, key moments or, you know, the way that they run the league pass and stuff like that. Whereas, You know, football, um, especially when you're dealing with like the Premier League and the Champions League, they're very, very keen to shut down that.
1: Which is strange for a sport that um, advertises itself, prides itself as
2: being the world's game. Um, It should be a lot more accessible to a lot more people. Well, I mean, we've been meaning to talk about the Women's Super League for a few weeks now since it started. And maybe this is a good point to give it a mention because they are really embracing that model Mm. and you know as decisions are being made with the men's game that we're all kind of pulling our hair out about actually what's going on with a lot of with the women's game at the moment is really encouraging you know i watched had the west ham chelsea game on yesterday but then i had arsenal west ham in the women's super league they streamed it live on facebook Mm. globally and they were posting highlights of all the goals online and everything like that and there's a real you know obviously it's a it's a a, a much more of a developing, you know, if you're going to look through the, the, the historical kind of timeline, yeah. but still the way that they're doing things are really, is really encouraging. It's, it's something that actually the men's game can learn a lot from, I think.
1: Well, they're doing, they're doing the right thing, but remember the women's game and the men's game are at completely different points in their development. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So the women's game, the women's game needs eyes on it. Um, mm-hmm. and it has to be accessible, but I think the men's game should be accessible, far more accessible than it is.
2: Um, but just for a completely different reason. I mean, we're very lucky living in Germany in a sense because we can watch, uh, for those who don't know, basically the rights holders for most of the Premier League and most of the major European leagues is a thing called DAZN, which is kind of like a Netflix for f- sport, basically. Yeah, it's a good it? way they, to describe it, yeah. And it's, what, €10 Euros a month? And Yeah, and you also you get Champions League and Europa yeah, League. Yeah, now this season they've got Champions League, Europa League, Premier League, La Liga, Serie A, all of it, like Dutch League, the Scottish League, you the Championship. E- you, can you can even watch.
1: catch up on a bit of J League if you want. Yeah, oh, wow. J League. <laughs> and They
2: have the Bundesliga highlights and they have a load of other sports as well. Whereas yeah. to watch the same equivalent sports in the UK, I think yeah. it's, it costs you something like £80 pounds a month. Yeah, absolutely. And DAZN
1: have really, I think, torn it up and mm. changed the game with that. You know, streaming is, uh, is the future, well, it's the present. And I don't think the Premier League... The Premier League's innovated in many ways and has changed... The landscape of football beyond recognition, um, but I do think there's some ways where they're a little bit behind the game.
0: Well, we're talking about accessibility of football, and sorry to be the segue guy again, but it's your—I just stole <laughs> that. I, I passed the baton <laughs> back. So you know, La Liga talking um very recently about being a sort of a, a global entertainment hub as opposed to just a footballing experience. And Ugh. you know, let's let's cut straight to the chase. At what point are we going to see a Champions League final in? Sao Paulo or the Cowboys Stadium or Tokyo, because it feels like we're moving towards a time where the game's going to be truly globalised. Well, I can see when you say that, Musa, how excited you are by the idea. <laughs> <laughs> listen, listen, can I just say, um, for those listening, if anyone listens to this podcast who can get me tickets to the <laughs> 2030 Champions League final in Sao Paulo, I will not say no. <laughs> but well, having said that... 2030, I mean, it's, 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 it's realistic. How do you feel about it? though?
1: I don't know. I don't know how I feel because I've just been... I've just been championing how the game should be more accessible um, and how it should be seen by, by more people. Um, And that has to, if I'm eh, online and in person perhaps, Um, but I think it sets a dangerous precedent because you know, you've got, um, you've got a lot of dedicated fans, not just to the big clubs um, in Germany, in England, everywhere. And once you start tinkering with the league, it becomes i think the final of a of a of a of a tournament is a slightly different thing um but i think if you start messing around with games regular games in the season it's a slippery slope and i think the way that la liga have dealt with it um by basically just announcing it without having proper negotiations with the um the players union is um it, it actually disgraceful
2: and the Sp- and the spanish fa they was just they just went ahead and announced that this was going to happen without any clearance from anyone yeah and um it's worth giving Colin Miller a follow on on Twitter who's been covering this and keeping you know updating the thread every time something new happens and it's just a complete mess and the, 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 the they've received a lot of backlash i think from it and yeah i mean i think the decision to play a regular season game we've covered this we did that podcast about it and how you know, Girona are going to lose their home game against Barca, so they have a load of season ticket holders who are going to have to get compensated, and apparently are going to be compensated for losing out on that game.
0: It's- but even that, like not being able to see, that's un- that's horrible. It's so un- imagine not being able to see Barca mm. come and visit after years of supporting. Yeah. Oh, sorry, we've whisked the fitch overseas.
1: Yeah, and for me, that's that's just it's it's sacred ground, and you just can't touch it. And I think the moment we ha- that happens. The game is uh, dying a slow death.
2: Well, this is a common thread with a lot of stuff that happens in La Liga: is that the fans they get walked over, mm. and so many decisions around what happens in La Liga seems well, it, to massively negative, like negatively affect fans. Like you've got the kickoff times, for example. Well, yeah, Prime example. That, yeah. So there's a lot of stuff going on with kickoff times, and they're try- I think the Spanish FA are wrestling back control to um dictate the kickoff times again. But there's been a long history of debate about this, about playing games late at night for arguably, you know, they'd use a, the the heat as an example. But then they'll play some games at one one p.m. and there'll be fans literally fainting in the stands, and basically they they spread it out for TV. Yeah, of course. Um,
1: you know, in Germany, um, the president of the DFB, Grindel, he came out earlier this year and just said that we're not gonna ever have. A German cup final played outside of Germany categorically said it and German football fans um they don't allow themselves to be walked over Monday night games they tried to in- introduce them last year and last season and they were met with let's just say fierce opposition um so I don't think it's something you're going to see in Germany but I think it's, it's a different it's a different ball game in Spain
2: on that topic actually I thought, found that really funny because they were been playing Friday night games in the Bundesliga and Bundesliga 2 for quite a while now, right? Yeah. Good few years. Yeah, yeah. And was it last season or the season before that they brought the Friday night game into the Premier League? Yeah. And loads of fans were like, whoa, what? Friday night? Friday night? But, but, but they've been dealing with Monday nights for years. Yeah, it's and weird, for me. It? Friday, night doing a Friday night game, much better. Yeah. So
0: much better. Yeah, yeah. This moment reminds me of... This is a slightly weird analogy maybe, but it reminds me of the time when they started charging us to take money out of our own bank accounts. You know, like a cash, board, you know, like it was you know, all of a sudden, you know what, you're like, oh my goodness, wow, it cost one fifth to take my money out. And we're like, this is never going to stand. Yeah. And now someone can charge you five euros to take money out of a cash. Board. You don't bat an eyelid, you yeah. just take out 150. So it makes it worth a transaction or whatever. I
2: got charged and five euros in Hamburg a few weeks ago. You see ice. what
0: I'm saying? So it's like almost what was unthinkable is now mm. completely thinkable. So, uh, But next it's, it's time, dangerous ground. It, I agree with that. But the next time a World Cup is in Africa, for example, an African country. It might be Africa where we play all the group matches in, we might play like the four regions of Africa. We have the different group stages Mm. and then we meet, we play the final in like whatever, 20, whatever. We play the final in Congo. And then here's the thing, everyone would tune into that. I'd watch that. Like, oh, the games will be connected by high speed rail throughout Africa. Like it'd be really exciting. Like, you know, and the globalization of the game is going to happen because frankly, we're all going to keep watching Like we're all going to, because it's, our eyes are stuck on it. And even if we boycott it, like you and I and whatever, but it's just the way things are going to go, unfortunately. See, to me, I mean, I know Ryan, you've discussed this before. This to me feels like it's almost a wider conversation about where the new, the next World Cup is going and about how we're going to democratize qualification there. So what would you say to, what would
2: you say? Well, the next World Cup is going to cause major disruption to the major European leagues and it shouldn't have been awarded to Qatar in the first place because this was inevitable that it was going to happen and Mm. I think we spoke about it on the podcast we said that we're a little bit worried about this might have been this is probably the last great World Cup we've had this year Mm. because of the changes with next one in Qatar then 48 teams and
1: they uh, they had FIFA haven't even ruled out bringing 48 teams into the next World Cup yeah
0: Finland into the west gentlemen well sorry there's a the future of football is in a perilous place, I think, overall. Uh, there's some exciting stuff, but fundamentally, I think the, uh, the prognosis is a bit concerning. That's how I see it. Um, but listen, gentlemen, absolute pleasure once again to have you on. And yeah, uh, all listeners, thank you for joining us again. We've run slightly long this week, but hopefully you'll find it engaging content. You can find us on all platforms, at Rabonamag, Facebook, Twitter, and so on, Instagram. And yeah, we'll see you again next week.